Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in a short series to start out the fall, and then in the month of uh, end of October, we'll be uh, embarking on uh, a journey through uh, the book of 1 Peter. And uh, yet we find ourselves today uh, focusing on the issue of community. We want to look at Acts chapter 2 in the early church and kind of find out what was God's uh, plan and program for the church. And there's a lot of things that we do, uh, but what did the first church do and how did it find itself living out its life and what we see over and over again in the life of the church is that the life of the church was a church in community that was in communion with one another and we've spent the last 10 weeks focusing in on the individual and a healthy pulpit will deal with the individual where you'll walk away and there'll be a lot for you to think about with regards to your own walk with Jesus Christ but one thing we miss in American evangelicalism is the corporate sense is calling of the corporate body, the community at large, to be interacting with one another and engaging one another. And so we've spent the last 10 weeks focusing in on your own self, and I want to thank Mark Krause for just the marvelous job he did uh, with the coveting command. And I learned so much, and I hope you did as well, as to the, the subtleness of coveting of our neighbor's things to close out our Ten Commandments series. Now we go to the corporate sense, and we ask the question, now how does Tim, or how does Keith, or any of us as individual Christians, how do we engage in the corporate entity called the church? Now my desire is, as we embark on this iChurch series, is to create a springboard and a motivation towards total involvement within the church. Now, some of you right away, when you hear a pastor say that, are thinking, well, now I'm going to get a guilt trip to be involved in this program, to be a part of this ministry, and to do this job. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I want is not a habit to be formed, but a heart change to take place. When we look at the scriptures, we see over and over again that we are not called into just a personal walk with God, but we are, as individuals, called to a body. We use that metaphor that we are parts of a body. We are sheep, a part of a flock. We are called into not just a personal relationship with God, but we are called into the family of God. And so we see this community metaphor over and over again. And what my desire is, and the desire of the preaching team, is not to get us to do things, but for us to be a church that recognizes that without each other, we're going to fail. Without each other, we will never live out the godly command to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus never intended the Christian life to be done on its own, but to be done together, hand in hand with one another. And we're going to see that over and over again, because the church not the building, not the programs, but us. Because the church is not an organization, it's an organism. It's a living and active body that's moving and relating to life and to culture. Is God's greatest change agent in the world. The church, not the family. While the family's important, it's the church that's the change agent. It's not the church and a bunch of para-church organizations as great as some of those ministries are and as helpful to the gospel as they are. It is the church that Jesus Christ baptizes us into, and it's the church that Jesus said that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. You and I are victorious because we have the blood of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
You and I are victorious because we now are a part of an elect group of individuals who now have been given the great privilege and right to be called children of God. And the entity, the organism by which God has placed us into this family is the church. And we need to have an understanding that God has a place in each of our lives, a major place in each of our lives for the church. That we need to be engaged in the church, not just in the programs, not just doing things, but that our heart is overwhelmed by the relationship we have with the people who reside in this body. And as we look also outside of the body into the invisible church that is seen throughout the world, we need to recognize that it is only through the church that Ephesians 3.10 says that the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to all the world. And so we've got to get this community thing down. We've got to understand what is my individual part. But herein lies the problem. We within American Christianity, I don't know where it came from. We can, we can trace it back to uh, the mid part of the last century that Christianity became a personal thing instead of a corporate thing. It became something that I invite Jesus into my heart. I make a personal decision about Jesus. And while there is some truth to that, that you and I must make a decision for Jesus Christ by faith that we do it together. See, an analogy or an illustration may be helpful with this. For many of us, as we've grown up in the American church, we have this idea that our relationship with God is a personal one, and it is. But it's a personal relationship that happens within the lives of other people. What I mean by that is for, for many of us, we view our relationship with God as a dance with God. And for some of us, because we're not as close to God, we're, we're doing the junior high dance. You remember the junior high dance? And just kind of this. And there was no, there's no real relationship there. You just were glad someone with some blood in them said yes. And, and uh, if you were me, you were like, look, someone, someone said yes. And I still to this day say that about Amanda. She said yes. And, and, you know, you sit there and rock back and forth. And there's no real uh, community happening. You're just kind of, you just kind of got a partner for the next three or four minutes until the song is done. And then there's others as we grow more mature in our walk and we recognize our dependence on God. And you see that sometimes where, where people are just, you know, entwined with one another and just loving the closeness and the intimacy on the dance floor. They're just, they're just loving being close to one another. And some of us find ourselves there saying, Lord Jesus, without you, I would be lost. And, and the closer I can get to you, the, the better off I will be. And so we rate our relationship as an individual on how close we are, if you will, dancing with Jesus, can I tell you that that illustration is completely wrong? The relationship of Christ always goes through the church. His relationship with you always must go through the church first. Let me tell you something, and this is going to probably rock some of you. You cannot have vibrant Christianity without the church. You can't. There's nowhere in the New Testament that ever says that you can be a Christian apart from the church. Now, what I mean by that is that you cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. You can't say it's going to be me and Jesus and nobody else. What it is is it's me and Jesus and all of you. It's me following Christ. And the best way to illustrate that is to take the dancing of America and to bring it back to where it was written in the, test, in the New Testament, and that is the Middle East. Now, many of you know I come from a Middle Eastern background. My father's from Iraq, born and raised there. 
And because of that, my life has been filled with traditions of an immigrant family from the Middle East. And one of the things that uh, we have come to love is, is wedding ceremonies. And many of you were at Amanda's and my wedding uh, many years ago, almost 15 years ago. I can't, I don't forget those things. 15 years ago. And many of you remember that uh, you saw a lot of Middle Eastern traditions within our, our marriage ceremony and that of the reception. And one tradition that I love is the tradition of the groom who is so excited that he has a bride, invites the crowd, the witnesses, those he has invited to the reception, to his party, to come and dance with him. And it's not a dance like this or, or in some warm embrace, but what it is, is the groom will take the hands of, of some of his friends and say, join with me in celebration. I have a bride. I'm excited. She's a beautiful bride, and she's going to change my life, and she's going to make me whole, and, and I'm so excited, and I want you to be excited with me. And the groom takes the role, and the bride sits and watches as the groom rejoices with the participants who rejoice with him. And so he takes their hand, and you've probably seen it. Some of you may have Greek backgrounds, some even with some Italian backgrounds or Middle Eastern backgrounds. No, you take hands, and a line begins to form that everybody is involved in the dance. And the dance, the job in this dance, of this Middle Eastern line dancing, is that the one who leads is the one you follow. As he kicks you kick. As he moves to the right, you move to the right. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, you do. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. That's the Christian walk. It's not just this personal thing, and, I, I, and I'm not sure where we got it. It's a part of it, but it's become a part of the whole that we've gotten rid of, that it's done in community with one another. And it's Jesus, the bridegroom, saying, I have redeemed a people. Now anybody and everybody come and join the dance with me and follow me and do what I do and do the kicks that I do and live the life that I do and enjoy with me the redemption that I've given. I want you, because a picture shows a thousand words, to explain a little bit. Let's, let's watch just this take place in, in the world of Middle Eastern dances. Go ahead and throw that up for us. Watch the groom lead these guys. By the way, it's a good-looking guy. That's not bald guy Tim there dancing. I wish I could dance like he does. But what you're seeing is here in this picture is a picture of what I believe the New Testament is telling us about the church. It is about us gathering together hand in hand as we follow the groom, Jesus Christ. As we follow him in the celebration of our redemption. But to live that out, is going to mean we're going to have to live differently. And I want to take the time that I have left and explore what Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 tells us and what the New Testament tells us. And I'm going to have you stand as we read this passage together. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 says, 
They devoted themselves. This is the church, the, the first days of the, this new church, this new entity, this new organism. They, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and with many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All believers were together and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father God, we ask your blessing on your word. May the meditations of my heart and the words from my mouth be pleasing unto you so that you may receive all the glory, honor, and praise. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So if we're called into community, and this is one of the key characteristics of the church in Acts, then why is it that we don't see it? Why is it our lives as Christians are so focused on self and not others? If God desires for us to be a people who live life together, why is it we spend so much time apart? I wanted you to notice a couple things this morning. First of all, what I'd like to call the crisis. The crisis. What causes us to miss out on this community that God has said is so important in the New Testament church and for us today? There is a crisis, and one of the ways that us as leaders are trying to deal with that is within our vision statement. You see, a lot of churches in America today find themselves focused in on just filling the pews, just taking care of having a lot of people involved in the program. But within our vision statement, we said we wanted to be different than that. And in the opening line of our vision statement, what we desire to be, it says we desire as Village Bible Church to be a family. Because we see community as being the most important thing. And how much tighter can you get than the family, right? How much tighter can a relationship be than that of, of, of the family? And so we want to be a family, a community of people who love one another, who care for one another, who minister to one another, and do so out of love and affection for each other. But we have to understand, and this is the great thing about that metaphor, is a family can be large, it can be small. We can have a family of just a, a one or two kids. You can have a family of uh, 12 or 13 kids. Or if you're the Duggars, 175 kids. And so the family, and, and, and here's the thing, the family size is secondary. Because you wouldn't say of a smaller family, oh, you guys aren't really a family, as you wouldn't say to a larger family, oh, well, you're really not a family. They're both families. Size, quantity is secondary. What is primary is the relationships. We want to focus in on the quality of relationships, not the quantity of relationships. And so whether or not God makes us a church of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, we're going to be the best church with the best relationships possible. That's our focus. And you're going to say, well, you know, I don't like a big church or I don't like a small church. Well, let me tell you something. The church in Acts went from 120 to 3,120 in one day. Talk about church growth. And what did not cease to take place was the intimacy of relationships. 
And what happened was is they created real and true biblical community. But why is that not happening not only in America, but why isn't it happening here at Village Bible Church? I'll give you two reasons. The first one has to do with, and the crisis of community comes because of our individuality. We're individuals. And as Americans, we find ourselves defining our life as something that's all about me. Webster's Dictionary defines individualism, listen to this, as the leading of one's life in one's own way without the regard of others. The leading of one's life in one's own way without regard for the others. Can I tell you that that describes many of us sitting here this morning? Now, you may not say that in a brazen way, but you're looking out for number one. And the reason why I know it is because I struggle with that. It's about Tim. It's about what he wants. It's about what he, when he wants, wants it and how he wants it. And when I don't get it that way, I bellyache. Well, he didn't do it my way. And they're not doing it my way, and because of that, I'm going to uh, moan about it. And I'm going to be angry about it because we, as individuals, want it. We want church like we want Burger King our way right away. We want it in our time, in our way, and if it doesn't, we'll go find somebody that does it that way. And that's what we've got. Within American Christianity, we've got people who call themselves Christian who aren't looking for community at all, but they're looking for their preferences. Well, I've got to find a church that meets at the time I want it to. They've got to have the program that I want. They've got to have the things that I want. Their music has to be the way I want it. If the preacher doesn't preach it my way, then I'm out of here. And so what happens, and I run into people all the time, who will say, well, where are you attending church? Where are you involved with God's people? Well, we sometimes go here and sometimes we go there and really just struggling to find a place that fits for us. And so what happens is, as an American Christianity, because of our individualism, we look for a church like we look for a restaurant or a grocery store. How are they serving me? I'm the customer how are you going to serve me? Let me just tell you right away, here at Village Bible Church, there's one customer, there's one person that matters, and that's God. That's it. And so if you're here because you think we're going to, we're going to, we're going to roll out the red carpet for you, we'll love you because we love all of people. But we're not going to serve, and we're not going to do things just to make you happy. And if you don't like what we're doing, we're not going to apologize about it because at the end of the day, after every service, we want Jesus to stand up and say, well done, well done. And sometimes that's going to interfere with Tim Bidall and his motives and Tim Bidall and his plans. We've got to understand individuality is a problem. And it's a problem within American culture. According to Penn University, who has a very large foreign exchange student um, program, they have a list of uh, things that they want to prepare the foreign exchange student for American life. And on the top of the list, at the beginning, this is what they say. And I want you to then transpose it into the church. They say probably the most important thing that you will need to understand in your time of study here in America is Americans' devotion to individualism. Since childhood, we as Americans have been encouraged to see ourselves as individuals responsible for our own identity and destiny, not as members of any collective group. As a result, many Americans believe that the ideal person is an autonomous, self-reliant individual. They generally do not prefer being dependent 
on other people or having others dependent on them. Because of this, Americans have a deep desire for personal and individual success, success both socially and economically. And many do not consider social and cultural factors as insurmountable barriers to their ability to get ahead. As a result, American culture is one filled with competitiveness for personal gain and is dominated by a motivation for personal achievement. And as a result, you will find that many times the life in America is a not-so-friendly competition between others instead of benevolent and loving care for our fellow man. That's not a preacher. That's a secular institution that says we blow it as Americans. It's all about the individual. And the Bible says this is absent from biblical Christianity. We are to be dependent on one another. We are to care for one another. We are to look to the hurting and say, oh, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, the Bible says help your brother and pull them up. And I'll tell you, it gets involved in the way we live with our neighbors. It gets involved in the way we deal with our politics. It involves every facet of our world and our thinking. And yet within the pews of many here at Village Bible Church, we look at our life, and not only our life, but our life as Christians entirely as something we do on our own. So we don't need anybody. We don't want anybody's help. We're going to do this thing on our own. And so we pursue life as a Christian, as a consumer. And yet the Bible says we are a part of a body. And so the individual attitudes have deformed our thinking about the church. While it may work in the real, the real secular world, it directly opposes the Lord's greatest command to love one another. You see, community is founded on love for others over love for self. Let me say that again. Community is found when love for others is on a greater level than the love of self. And that's what Christ is calling us to. Notice the second issue that we run into as Americans and as American Christians, and that is insecurity. Now, while the first one I can kind of understand, you see it because of the context of history and all of that, the second one for Christians I just don't get. And here's what I mean. Now, nobody wants their issues to be admitted. Nobody wants their garbage to be paraded in front of others. We like to keep our problems to ourselves, and we're not alone in that. But here's the problem, and, and walk with me through this. Christianity is based on the premise that you and I are sinners, right? We're sinners. And we at Village Bible Church believe in what we call the total depravity of man. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly could be. It just means that every part of us is sinful. We were born with it. In our mother's womb, we were conceived in sin, and theologically we get that, and theologically we understand that because we're born into sin that we're going to live sinful lives, and, and then we even understand that as we come to know Jesus, while that sin is paid for and taken care of, Paul tells us according to Romans 6 and 7 that we're still going to fight with this issue of sin, and so we've got it theologically right. We've got the theological framework of sin right, but herein lies the problem. We don't live that way because we come to church and we do the best job of decoying everybody to thinking that we don't have any sin. People come up and say, how you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? 
well, I'm doing great as well. I'm okay, you're okay, God's okay, everything's okay. And yet this week, you looked at things you shouldn't have. You used words you shouldn't have. You gossiped about others. You had evil thoughts. You pursued debauchery. You gave a person that you don't even know a, a salute that should be foreign to every Christian. You badmouthed your kids. You said, you know, I just want to really wring their neck. And someone says, yeah, I understand that. You're like, no, I really, really, really want to wring my kids' necks. And we don't talk about our failures in our marriages. We don't talk about the struggles we're having in our Christian life. And it's amazing. But theologically, we get it. We're all sinners. The only one who doesn't have any issues is Jesus, and he came to die for us. And yet we play this game because I don't want anybody to know that I'm a sinner. Let's think about the paradox of that. I'm a sinner in need of grace, but I will never tell any other sinners who are in need of grace the sins I have. And let me ask you this. When was the last time, as a Christian, you confessed a sin to someone else? When was the last time that you walked up to somebody and, and said, I could really use some prayer right now? Because right now, every time I go to that computer, I'm drawn to things I don't need to be. Every time I open my mouth, man, the curse words just come out, and I need prayer. Or man, my attitude stinks right now. I'm not leading my family well. I'm not leading my wife well. I'm not leading my children well. I'm blowing it every time that I want to do right. And you know, the example Paul gives it. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Paul, the apostle Paul, confesses to everyone, including us today, I'm blowing it. And community, it just it has to be saturated with us being open enough to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. And yeah, I need Jesus. I need him each and every hour. One of the trademarks of my preaching is not by accident. And part of the reason why I have to do it is because so many of you saw me grow up. I'm a sinner. My record shows it. I've blown it. And I've blown it a lot with many of you. And so I can't get up here and act like a preacher who's got it all put together, but I gotta be transparent and I gotta be willing to throw my insecurities out the table and say, you know what? The only thing that I can rest on is God and his work on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because I'm a sinner. And I blow it. And, I, and I've used this statement before and I'll use it again. I don't fall to certain kinds of sins. I fall to all of them. All of them. Just give me enough time. Just expose me to it long enough and I'll fall to it because I know that the devil is alive and well in this body of flesh. And so I, I, I confess that to you. And until we confess sins one to another, as the scriptures say, we will not experience community. We will have fences and we have gated communities in our lives that will keep people out of really who we are. And so those 250 people that are involved in small group, I'm going to challenge you. It's time to start exposing our lives to others because that's where community begins. Now, we've got to get to then what this community is. It's not just a crisis. We've got to get to exactly what is it. And it's got some characteristics. And I want us to look again at the characteristics through the lens of Acts chapter 2. This wasn't a group of individuals that joined this social order. It wasn't like the Lions Club. Hey, come and be a part. 
something you do at lunchtime on Thursdays. This was something that was going to be a part of who they were. Now the text says, now notice in Acts chapter 2, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to address that in a couple weeks. But I want you to notice they were devoted also to fellowship. What does fellowship mean? It's the word koinonia, of course. Many of you, that's one of the only Greek words you know, and it just you love it, koinonia. You know, it makes you sound like a preacher. Koinonia literally means to share, in, or to share or to have in common. And we can have fellowship in a lot of different ways. If you're a Bears fan here, we fellowship around the TV set with our Bears, our beloved Bears. Okay? And when they win, we're excited. When they lose, we're sad. This past week, Amanda and I were visiting some people on Thursday, and they wanted to watch the Bears game, and the babysitter came, and it was Katie Calhoun here from church. And when I saw Katie come, I said, oh, the Bears are playing the Packers. And I said to the boys, I said, I just want you to know Katie's not a Bears fan. She's a Packers fan. And Noah looked at us with the most sternest of faces and said, why is she even here? (laughs) And you know what Noah was saying? I can't have fellowship with a Packers fan. I mean, Mom, Dad, you blew it. I I can't watch a game with a Packer. And likewise, there's some commonality. There's something we have to have in common. And so you can have fellowship with sporting events. You can have uh, fellowship in work things. You can have a fellowship of a team of, of workers focusing in and devoting themselves to a common thing. You have fellowships within schooling where people are gathering and studying and focusing in on the same subject matter. But the greatest fellowship is seen within the local church, the community of believers. I want you to see for a moment, I want you to turn the page to uh, Acts chapter 4 for a moment. In Acts chapter 4, in a couple verses, Luke is going to give us the framework of the common and commonality, the community, the common unity of believers. Notice Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. We're going to see that this union is a mystical union. We can't explain it. It's mystical. He says this in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. He says this in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. On on Thursday, all Chicago Bears fans were one in heart and mind. And the best way to illustrate what's going on in the church is to illustrate what happens in a football game. So Jay Cutler Throws an interception. What is the response of all Bears fans everywhere? Ah. Jay Cutler throws a pass, and it's a touchdown, and the response of every Bears fan everywhere is? I hope it's more than that. That was the wimpy. The Packers are like, that's why we're not Bears fans. Okay? It's a little more than that, okay? But we rejoice, and we're sad. We're one in heart, And we're one in mind. Now don't move past this because this is a miracle. What Luke is writing in Acts chapter 4 is an absolute miracle. 3,120 people from all lands and all places. Remember the day of Pentecost when Peter gets up, he preaches to people that were from 15 different countries. 
different languages, different customs, men and women, slaves and masters, and he brings them all together, and they gather together, and they are one in heart and mind. What brought them to that place? Notice, first of all, they're believers. They're believers. The unity that they had was based on a belief in somebody, and that somebody was Jesus Christ. Some were poor, some were rich, some were old, some were young. Some had backgrounds of religion, others had not. Some came from very sinful backgrounds, others came from religious backgrounds. And the only thing that they could agree upon was that they had believed in a man named Jesus, sent by God to live a life of perfection, to die on a cross at Calvary, and that the blood that was shed would be applied to our lives and would enable us to be a part of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, the unity that we have begins with who we believe in. So we all come from different towns. Some of us are young and others of us are old. Some of us have a lot more money in our bank account than others. Some of us live in homes, others in apartments. Some of us have religious backgrounds. Others of us have been pulled from lives of terrible sin. Some of us are Republicans, others of us are Democrats. Some of us are involved in management, while others of us are in blue-collar work. All of this makes us very different, but we gather together. And we come into this place, and we worship one name, Jesus Christ. If that's not in a miraculous miracle, I know you can't use an adjective for a noun, but a miraculous miracle, I don't know what is. Every time we gather together, brothers and sisters, we should be in awe. How can a bunch of weird, abnormal, messed up people with all different kinds of thoughts on everything under the sun gather together and be in agreement? How can 800 people at a local church called Village Bible Church actually agree upon something is a miracle in and of itself. And that's why a worship time together should be absolutely transforming. Because in one voice, in one mind, and in one heart, we lift up the name of Jesus. Excuse me, Jesus. And nobody says, well, what about me? It's all about him. And so that's what they did. They were followers of Jesus. Notice the next thing. It involved a missional unity. They were unified in mission. In verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. So they would gather together, and the apostles, just as I do today, uh, we proclaim the revelation of Jesus Christ, of his death, burial, and resurrection. And it wasn't good enough for them just to rejoice. It says each and every day they gathered in the temple courts, Acts chapter 2 tells us, praising the name of Jesus. But that wasn't good enough because their worship was so awe-inspiring. We'll talk about worship next week. Their worship was so awe-inspiring that it changed the way they lived every other day of the week. Brothers and sisters, we are not where we need to be with regards to our community because when we gather together, we get done, and I'm going to tell you something. Some of us just get done, and, and I've done this many times. Well, that was fine. That was another Sunday. And we're not challenged and changed by gathering together, being encouraged by the brothers, being spurred on towards love and good deeds, that we leave this place emboldened and empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we're not trucking in a whole trainload of people who we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with next week. You say, well, that doesn't happen. 
The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We say that's a different time. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It says we're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's not a mega Holy Spirit and a micro Holy Spirit. We're filled with the same power. The Bible says we are filled with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That dynamic power. And so you want to know if we're a church that's really living out biblical community? I say no, because we're not walking into this place and we're not bringing into fellowship droves of people. Can I tell you, of course, Acts chapter 2, they start with 120 in the upper room. They go to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. By Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 4, they're up to 5,000. And by the time Paul and Barnabas head out of Antioch, most scholars believe that the church now is 100,000 strong. That's exponential growth. All the while, all of that is happening during some of the harshest persecution known to man. My goodness, these guys had it down. And they were unified that it wasn't just for us, this gospel, but it was for the world. So they shared it. Finally, we see that there was material unity. Material unity, verse 32, and then 40, 34 and 35 says, All believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Brothers and sisters, we live in the richest country known to man. We have more than we could ever imagine. What we live on in a day would make us rich with what people make in a year anywhere else. And yet the thing that we lack in is our ability and heart to give what God has given us. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, it was not required. And so you can't hear me say, you got to give your house up to someone else. No, that's not what I'm saying. This isn't communism, where the church owns everything and then the private individual doesn't. But I have to ask the question, when was the last time that we said, none of what I have do I claim as my own? That statement of New Testament Christianity is a statement of great stewardship. Notice, stewardship is that I'm a manager of what God has given me. We've talked about that. There's not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry, this is mine, this belongs to me. Stewardship is in the following. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. We will get community when we say, my house is not my own. My car is not my own. My bank account is not my own. It's God's. And God gave it to me to be a blessing to others. And so my possessions are going to be held in an open hand, not a closed fist. And you're not going to experience community as a Christian if there is anything in your life that you say is closed. I'll not give this up. And boy, that goes against American culture, doesn't it? He who, with the, who dies with the most toys wins. It's mine. It's mine. Make sure I have it. And so we see this material unity. And we'll talk about this under the heading of stewardship later in our series. But they didn't just worship together. They served one another out of acts of love and affection seen through compassion. When was the last time, brothers and sisters, we gave of ourselves because we saw a place that needed compassion to our fellow man? 
Let me tell you, how can we have unity when I have plenty and you have nothing? Can't do that. So those who have plenty need to give to those who have need. That doesn't mean that someone can sit idly by because the Bible says, and I want to be careful to balance this, that if a man does not work, he does not eat. And then if a man doesn't provide for his family, that he's worse than an infidel, the Scripture says. He's worse than a pagan. And so we need to balance that. But those who genuinely are in need because life and circumstances have come their way and have brought them to a place of need, we need to give, and we need to give out of the abundance of our hearts. And so we need to do this at Village Bible Church each and every day. We need to be coming to church asking the question, who can I serve, who can I love, who can I give to? This leads us then, of course, to the components. We've got to move here. Just so you're aware, my last point is very short, so stick with me. What's involved in attaining this fellowship? What are the components? I'd be remiss, even though all the components are biblical, to say that we cannot live out this unity without God. The Bible says that we are to make every effort to find the unity in the, of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity is the Spirit's. We can't make that on our own. And so we need to pray that God would unify this church and create real community in this church, but we've got to make every effort. And so I want to ask the question, are you making every effort this morning to the unity and the community of this church? Well, let's do some testing. Let me ask you, how is your priority this morning? How's your priority? Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says they were devoted the idea here better translated is they were continually devoting themselves to the study of God's word, to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship. And it points to constancy. It points to a sole purpose. It calls us to a certain resolve. And so let me ask you this question this morning with your brothers and sisters around you. How much time did you think about this group of people this week? How often did you pray for one another this week? How devoted are you to each other? How hard are you working to reach out to one another? How much time did you spend with each other this week? How do you feel when you're absent from these people? Is your heart broken or is it no big deal? Do you give yourself over in service to one another, not out of duty, but out of great delight, loving every moment of it because you are serving the ones you love? Is your fellowship with this body of believers leading you to remove anything and everything from your schedule? Because the Acts Church met every day with great joy in their hearts. And yet here in America, we have difficulty to make it at church on Sunday. How we miss it. Where's your priority? How about your hospitality? While they fellowship, the scripture says in Acts chapter 2, to corporate settings every day in the temple courts, it also says, and this is amazing, think about this, every day they worship together in the temple courts, praising God's name, and then it says, and then they met in their homes daily. So they'd go and they would worship, and then it wasn't good enough just to worship, then they would go and spend time with one another. Some of you are looking at your clock saying, I want to get home. And I'll tell you, that's foreign to New Testament Christianity. Seven times in the New Testament, we are called as Christians, all Christians, to offer hospitality, to show hospitality, 
not just a couple hours, but New Testament hospitality meant that people would stay weeks on ends. They were traveling. And yet in American culture, what we say is that fish and guests are alike because they both start to smell after a couple days. We don't like it. And yet we live in the biggest homes on God's great earth. We've got more opportunities and more free time than anybody else around. And the last thing we can possibly think about is having someone over. So let me ask you, in this last summer we've just finished, how many people were in your home? And you know what? You'll come up with all kinds of excuses. Because I know I do. The house isn't clean. I don't have anything to feed them. Nobody would want to come over. And yet the New Testament is filled with example after example. That hospitality is the way that community is created. So when was the last time you had a brother or sister over? You say, well, the house doesn't work. When was the last time you invited someone out for a, a, a dinner, for a hamburger? Just said, let's go and let's fellowship. We go have a cup of coffee. That's hospitality. Max Lucado says this with regards to hospitality. It's a long quote, so I'll put it up there. Long before the church ever had pulpits and baptistries, she had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament unveils the house as the primary tool of the church. The primary gathering place of the church was the home. Consider the genius of God's plan. The first generation of Christians was a tinderbox of contrasting cultures and backgrounds. At least 15 different nationalities heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Jews stood next to Gentiles. Men worshipped with women. Slaves and masters alike sought after Christ. Can people of such varied backgrounds and cultures get along with each other? We wonder the same thing today. Can Hispanics live in peace with Anglos? Can Democrats find common ground with Republicans? Can Christian families carry on a civil friendship with a Muslim couple down the street? Can divergent people get along? The early church did. Without the aid of sanctuaries and church buildings, clergy and seminaries, they did so through the clearest of messages, the cross, and the simplest of tools, the home. Not everyone can serve in a foreign land, lead a relief effort, or volunteer in a downtown soup kitchen. But who of us can't be hospitable? Do you have a front door? A table? Chairs? Bread and meat for sandwiches? Well, congratulations. You have just qualified yourself to serve in the most ancient of ministries, hospitality. Something holy happens around a dinner table that will never happen in a sanctuary. In a church auditorium like this, you see the back of heads. Around the table, you see expressions of faces. In the auditorium, only Tim talks. Around the table, everybody has a voice. Church services, oh, I know this, are on the clock. And around the table, there's always time to talk. Hospitality opens the door to uncommon community. It's no accident that the same Latin word, for the, uh, that, I'm sorry, hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin word, for they both lead to the same result, healing. When you open your door to someone, you're sending the message, you matter to me and to God. You may think you're saying, come over for a visit, but what your guest hears is, I'm worth the effort. Max Lucado has a way of words, doesn't he? Hospitality is the ball game, brothers and sisters. And if we're not hospitable, then we're not going to be a community. The next one that I want to hit on is intimacy. 
And I want you to turn for a moment. I just want to highlight something for your perusal. 1 Corinthians 13. Turn there for a moment. If you're in the book of Acts, go through the book of Romans, and you'll get to the book of 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 13 is the chapter of love. And where we hear chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians recited most is at the wedding. Two people get together, they're all dolled up, looking all great, and the pastor has them read, love is patient, love is kind, and, and we get this idea that 1 Corinthians 13 is an exhortation to a husband and wife. It's not. The exhortation of 1 Corinthians 13 is an exhortation to the people that he's talking to in 1 Corinthians 12. Well, who is he talking to? Where love, must love be patient and love be kind? Where must love not boast? Where must love not be rude or proud or self-seeking, not easily angered, that keeps no record of long? Where does love need to find itself not delighting in evil but rejoicing with the truth? Where does love need to always protect, always trust, always hope, and always persevere? Where must love never fail? Let's look at chapter 12, verse 12. The body, the church, is one unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and through all its parts are many, they form one body. If you don't have priority, and you don't have hospitality, you will never get to intimacy. Brothers and sisters, we will never be a church of love until we become a church that makes it our priority to love one another. And you say, this is not by accident. Our mission statement says, we will love one another to the point of sacrifice. And so I'm going to sacrifice my time and my energy for you. I'm going to open my home, and not just for a meal, but if you need a place to say, I'm going to open my home. There have been many a people from this church have spent time in the Badal basement because God gave me a house. And it's not the biggest house in the church. It's not even close. It's not the most grandest place. It's just a house. But God said, I gave it to you so that you could give it to others. And so we open our home and so that we can start loving on each other. But it leads to accountability as well. The final area that fellowship is found in community is in accountability, where we bear one another's burdens. The scriptures say that if anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, he's talking to the collective group. He's telling this to the church Paul is writing to. He says in Galatians, you who are spiritual in the church should restore them, but do it gently to speak the truth in love, Paul says in another passage. But the scripture tells us, Matthew 18 tells us, that in Jesus' own admonition to the church, that as a church we're to call out one another's sins, but to be careful that we don't point out the speck of, in someone else's eye while we have a log in ours. And so we speak the truth, brother, you're falling to sin. I want to help you. I want to point out your sin in love. I want to show you how God has redeemed you from that. And I want to take you away from that. And if he doesn't listen, we're to take someone else from the church. And we're to share that with them. And if they don't listen still, in love and sincerity, the whole church in one voice says to the erring believer, Tim, you're blowing it. And if you don't turn from your ways, we, the church, are going to remove our fellowship from you. Well, if my fellowship with you is just a Sunday morning, I'll go down the street. But if it's my life, and it's all that I have and all that I'm a part of, that church saying, no way, Jose, we're not going to let you live this way and let you sit idly by in our worship. We're going to remove that protection from you. Then church discipline has taken on a measure of biblical proportion. 
Because you're like, what would I do without Village Bible Church? Where would I go? Who will I fellowship with? Community is huge in the accountability of the believer. Brothers and sisters, how off we are when it comes to what we think the church is and what it's all about. And it's time for us as individual Christians to connect once and for all with a church in community. And so a choice needs to be made this morning. A choice needs to be made. And it's a choice you have to make. Nobody can make it for you. I'm not going to guilt you into it, not even try to. I've presented what the scripture says of what our involvement in the church should be, what our heart should be within the church. And I ask you this question, are you going to choose isolation or involvement? You're going to do it on your own? Here's what I've learned about people that do it on their own. God brings trials into their life. I got a call this week from someone who hasn't attended our church in years and hasn't been in a church for years. And I got this, oh my gosh, I need the church. I need you guys to be praying. I need you guys to be doing this. And I said, well, why, where are you worshiping? What, what's going on? You've got someone around you that's loving you? No, I don't go to church. I, just, I haven't found a church that works for me, but I need your help. And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's not how community works. The church is not your 911 operator. And so I told them, hey, I'll pray for you as a brother and sister in Christ. But until you're actively involved at Village Bible Church, there's not much we can do for you. We don't just hand out things. We're just not an emergency hotline. We are a family who rejoices together, who cries together, and who helps one another in our time of need. And we do so because we're in community. That person wasn't very happy because they've for years now been living under the lie that Christianity is an individual thing. And it's amazing that God is using trials in their lives to force them back because their trials are bigger than they can handle on their own. Are you going to choose isolation or involvement? Number two, are you going to choose selfishness or service? I'm going to hit this very quickly. Some of you come in and you ask the question, what is the church going to do for me? I don't like the times we worship. We need to change those. I don't like how long the services go. We need to change that. I don't like this. I don't like that. I want it different. Let me ask you something. If you're not coming in with an attitude of what can I do for this church, then you don't know what community is. I've said this probably before, and I'd be remiss not to say it again. I am not a career pastor. I've been a pastor here almost 10 years. And I became a pastor of this church for one reason, because the family I love, Village Bible Church, needed someone to preach the gospel. And I was compelled to the fact that God had empowered me to do so. And so let me tell you something that Amanda and I have talked about. If there's ever a day, and it probably is a day coming, I'll blow it some way somehow, and you guys will be like, get out of here. I gotta be honest with you. I'm not sure I'd go jump into another church. Can I tell you, I've never ever put a resume out for anything because I don't think that it's a job. God called me to serve my family. It's like mowing the grass for my dad. It's a part of being the family. And so I go and I do it because I love my parents and, and they need help and, and in their time of need, I'm there and I, and I do so with joy in my heart. Brothers and sisters, it's not easy being bivocational. It's not easy doing all that. There's a lot of things on a Saturday night I wish I could do, but I can't because I've committed to you, the family I love, to be your preacher, to go and study God's word. It's not a job. It's a passion because I love you all. And I do it because of that. 
I do it because I love what the Word of God is doing in my life and what I want to see in you. So it's not selfishness. It's service. Are you going to make possessions more than people? Are your possessions more important than people? You're never going to live out community. Brothers and sisters, we don't get this. Then all we are is a glorified country club that has a lot of great programs, a wonderful facility, and all that we do will be for naught. But if we desire to do this, if we desire to connect with one another, it is then and only then that the Bible says that the grace of God will be on us all and we'll stand in awe of what God's going to do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time. And Lord, I pray for every individual in this place. You have called them. You have won them. You have saved them. But Lord, you have called them not to remain individuals, but to become a part of the body. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts each today, wherever we may be. If we're in isolation, Lord, you'd call us to involvement. If it's selfishness, Lord, you would call us to service to one another. If it is the possessions that we have, Lord, that we'd be drawn to live and reach out to people. Lord, challenge us in this way. Build our priority. Build our hospitality. Build the intimacy that we have with one another and build the accountability that we have. Lord, we want to be your church. We want to be your people because it is not good enough for us to sit idly by by ourselves after we have been redeemed, but to share the love of Christ with one another and in doing so, Lord, that we would change this community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, that Sugar Grove would know that we are Christians because of the love that we have for one another. Let that be our mantra. Let that be our goal so that all we come in contact with may hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, make that our passion this morning as we leave this place, as we fellowship with one another. Lord, that there would be some, some on-the-spot hospitality that would happen today, that we would open our hearts and our homes and go grab a sandwich with someone and just show the love of Christ to them. In Christ's name, Lord, we give this time to you. Amen.